Good morning, ladies. It is so hard to believe that this is our last full day of Bible study with small groups meeting together. It's been such a fantastic year, and I applaud each one of you for your perseverance as you have studied God's Word and allowed Him to change you and use you in the lives of the women in each of your groups. So way to go. You've made it. So next week, we will have a celebration celebrating all that we have um, learned over the year. And it will look like we will be in here all together. You will sit with your small group at a table and we will have food. So What I ask for you to do is to please let your small group leader know if you would like for us to order food for you. Um, She'll just get a number for each small group and let us know, and then we'll just have some food on the table. We'll have some time of fellowship and watching the children sing, and then we will have a time to... um, a say-so, where we can stand and tell each other what the Lord has done in our lives as we have studied His Word in the book of Exodus, and um, it'll be a great time to really encourage each other and um, celebrate what the Lord has done. So, please be sure and RSVP to your, t- to your leader. Secondly, we will send this week out a, um, le- some review questions that will just help to guide your thinking so that you can be just thinking about just all uh, over the whole year this year, what have I learned? How have I been changed by the study of this word? And so it'll help guide your thinking to prepare you to share next week. So we hope to hear lots of great stories. We will also send you this week a survey, um, the end of the year survey and Bible study. I ask you to please take five minutes to fill that out for us. Complete it online and send it back in. We really do look at the answers to that. It really helps us as leadership to guide our thinking as to what we are going to do next year. What worked, what didn't work, helped us see some blind spots. There's a spot in there to ask for just maybe how do you feel like we could improve? So we want to be able to serve you better and, um, just ask for your input in doing that. So don't don't forget to complete that survey. It'll be helpful for us. So if you would pray with me and then we'll get Nika up here to teach. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for how you have revealed yourself to us through your holy word. I pray for each one of the women in this room that as they just continue to seek you and seek truth from your word, even this morning, that you would reveal yourself to them and that you would change all of us as we listen to the teaching today and listen to um, just what you've taught each other in the small groups, that you would just um, fill our hearts with new truth and new wisdom. I pray for Nika as she speaks, that um, she would speak with clarity and that she would speak only the words that you have chosen for her to speak today, and that as we listen, um, that you would teach us. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here today and learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I hate to disappoint you. At no point is there going to be a choir that comes and fills in behind me. At least not that one that I'm aware of. So, um, so friends, we, we've made it, right? We were, you know, yeah, a year ago we were in Egypt, 
and uh, it wasn't super fun because we were enslaved. And we've kind of come on this journey and we went through the wilderness and all that. We've had our ups and downs. And as as one of your Sherpas, so to speak, who's been able to hang out with you and teach you on some occasions, I feel like we're friends now. And so since we're friends, I'm going to invite you into some of my uh, thinking. And so... Every girl, before they're married, thinks about their wedding day, right? And I think about my wedding day about as often as I think about winning the Olympics, because I think they're both as likely to happen. And so, uh, and one actually excites me more than the other. I'm like, if I only was a foot taller, I'd be an Olympian. And so, so when, but when I think about my wedding day, unlike most girls, like, I, I don't think about the flowers. Like, I don't know the difference between a pansy and a poppy. Seriously, I have no idea. In fact, Lucina knows everything about horticulture. Um, and, and there are times where I'm like, literally, I look at her, I'm like, was there a class that was offered that I just didn't take in Womanhood 101? Like, you help me out with this. Um, I don't think about my dress because I don't understand any of the terms people use, like A-line and fishnet. No, that's not a thing. Like, uh, mermaid, mermaid, there we go. Or like, well, I'm like, I don't, I have no idea what looks good on me. I'm lucky. I actually bought a steamer recently because people were like, you don't own an iron. You're 30 years old and you don't own an iron. I was like, fine, Amazon steamer. I don't use it, but I have one. And so like, I don't think about that. I don't really think about the guy too often because I, I just haven't really swooned over any guys. And so probably he'd be like LeBron James, which I should not be thinking about. And so I don't think about that. But oddly enough, I do think about after the reception, if you catch my drift, right? And I'm not confessing that I'm lusting. I'm not thinking about that part of it. But I am thinking about where people choose to go to consummate their marriage. Because a lot of people go to the Motel 6 by the airport. And I just think, I don't know, I want something a little bit more special than that. And so people who book their honeymoon first thing in the morning after their wedding, I'm like, why? And now I realize most of you in here did that. So hear me say, I'm psychotic. I'm not normal. Do not hear me say, I think you should have thought more about this. But these are the things that I think about that I'm like, hey, for me, since I'm a homeowner and I'm older, if I ever get married, I would like to have our future home established and consummate the marriage in our future bed because I can, like I care about all those details because I don't want to drive by the Hyatt and be like, (laughs) Uh, and I don't want my friends driving by the Hyatt and being like, that was where Nike and her husband, yeah, so... So those are the things I think about. So now you're sitting here asking yourself, she is way overshared, and I have no idea why she would do this. Well, surprisingly enough, my psychotic thinking actually has something to do with today's lesson. Because if two weeks ago I told you that they married God, but honeymoon with somebody else, today they're actually getting their honeymoon, and they're going to consummate their relationship with God, not in some weird way, they're not having sex, but today we're going to see the Israelites get to partake in their covenant relationship with God in a really unique way, in a way that some man and woman on their wedding night get to do, and then in the same way that God and the Israelites get to do in a special way that he's going to dwell with them. They're going to get privileges that no other people group get, and what's really cool is that God cares about how that's going to happen. In some small way, I get to image God, luckily, that he cares about the way that they're going to consummate this marriage in the same psychotic way that I care about not doing it at the Hyatt, so to speak. So, I told you we're friends, so you may want to reconsider if we are or not, but... So we're going, to look at, we're going to look at the fulfillment of, of all that God has promised today. It's an incredible ending to this story of Exodus. And we're going to look at the fulfillment of the tabernacle directions. We're going to look at the fulfillment of the priestly directions. And then we're going to look at the fulfillment of their covenant as God comes and descends on them. And we're going to just see what it is that we learn about God through this story. 
And so right away, you guys probably have noticed there's a lot of redundancy in what we've already learned in Exodus. So chapters 25 through 31, the directions were given for the tabernacle. And then you remember we had a departure in 32 through 34 because the golden calf and, and that whole incident. And then chapters 35 and 40, you've probably noticed, are the fulfillment of those directions. They're actually beginning to do what it is that God has told them to do. And you might have also noticed that the order is a little bit different in these sections. In 25 through 31, the order was given in terms of importance. And so you and your husband or you and whoever decide you want to buy a house and you start talking to the builder, you're going to probably talk about the things that are most important to you, but maybe not the order that you're going to actually build them, right? So you don't come to him and go, man, we want a solid slab. No, you're going to be like, we want separate sinks, okay? Like we've had enough of the same sink, right? And so those are the things you begin to talk about where people are like, yeah, the tiles are heated. I'm like, oh, great. Uh, so 25 through 31 is an order of importance, but then 35 through 40, the order is based on the actual directions and the, and the way that they did it. So we build the, you know, the foundation first and go up from there. You also might have noticed that in some places in 25 through 30, the directions are really succinct. And then in 35 through 40, they're elongated a little bit. And you might have noticed that in other places they're elongated and now they're shortened. And you may be asking yourself, why the difference? Why not just the verbatim? Well, one of the reasons is they're an oral society, so they learn by listening. Most of the people weren't literate, so you learn by listening. Well, if both sections are exactly the same, you may not know where you're at in the story when you're in the temple and you're hearing the reading. So you may be hearing the directions and you're like, is this before or after the golden cap? And so this gives them a way to know where they're at in the story. The second thing, and, and one of the commentators said, is because God knows how fickle we are as people, and so by, by changing it up, it makes it psychologically fresh, so you're not going, oh, I've heard this before. How many of y'all did that? Yeah, we heard about this. That they were, you know, people were like, guys, I don't know, the second half of Exodus is kind of boring. And I was like, oh, it's kind of the word of God. So, no, I'm kidding. But isn't that cool that even God knew that we would need it to be slightly different for it to hold our attention and he does that for us? It's kind of amazing. And so those are just some fun facts for you. But the real question is, what do we learn about God and what do we learn about ourselves and the tabernacle directions being fulfilled? The first thing that we learned is that God deserves nothing but our best. Did you see all the gold and the silver and the bronze and the linen and everything that was brought? They never had to cut corners. It wasn't like people brought everything and then God was like, well, we don't have enough for 15 cubits, so we're just going to do 14 cubits and try and make this an oblong square. No, no, it was the best that was brought to God. And the people followed the directions perfectly, perfectly. Why? Because God deserves our best. He doesn't deserve some willy-nilly construction or some half-baked worship experience or some tabernacle that looks a little shoddy to the rest of the world. As one commentator says that they were building a grand residence for the greatest being. A grand residence for the greatest being. This tabernacle is going to go with the Israelites throughout their journey to the land of Cana. And so the rest of the world is gonna look and see the most grandiose tabernacle and go, there's something different about that God. I got to go to Greece last summer for a couple of weeks to, to photograph manuscripts, the Bible, to photograph the Bible, to preserve the Bible. And um, if, you've, if you've never been to Greece, it's, it's a really interesting time to be there because they're, they're broke. And uh, so there are rallies and all that stuff. But one of the things in Greece is there's graffiti everywhere everywhere. No, no building is safe. And it's amazing because some of their buildings are super old, right? You come to America and they're like, look how old this is. And you're like 60 years old. You go to Greece and you're like, it's a thousand years old. I mean, it's a super old building. And so one of the things that they would do is they would just graffiti church buildings and they would graffiti it with 
really disgusting phallic signs or cuss words or things like that. And I would look at them and I, and I remember just being sad. Not sad that somebody had done it, but sad that nobody cared enough to take it down. I mean, our building is such a perfect example that we don't, we don't necessarily need the opulence and the grandeur of the temple or the tabernacle because God's dwelling beyond that. But, but when people come to Watermark, we want them to think it's beautiful because ultimately we want them to think is that we care enough about this building because this is the building in which we worship our God. And so from this text, we learn that God deserves nothing but our best. And so from us and our worship and the way that we carry ourselves, we should want nothing but the best in what we do for the, our Lord. The second thing that we learn is worship should be done according to God's wishes. When you buy a piece of furniture from Ikea, who's the, who's the hero? The person who wrote the directions or the person who followed them? From Ikea, it's the person who followed them, right? Because the directions have been translated four different times, right? From like the Swiss person who wrote it to Mandarin to Cantonese to like Greek and then back to English or something, I don't know. And those stick figures that aren't stick, they're like really rounded, somewhat human-esque pictures. Maybe I don't buy Ikea for, anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes, yeah, N- not when it comes to the tabernacle. The actual truth is, is that if you buy directions from somebody that they're actually good directions, the heroes aren't the people that assemble the furniture. The hero is the person that wrote the directions so that you can create something that's worthy and useful and helpful. In God's directions, he's showing them a way that they can build a structure for him that is a suitable way to worship him. He's the hero. Nobody builds the cabinet and is like, look, I'm a cabinet maker. You're like, no, you're not. You're a cabinet assembler, which within your own right deserves some sort of praise. But the truth is, is God gave them the directions to build a place that would be a suitable place for them to worship him. And so he's the, he's the real hero. And so what do we get from that is that our worship should reflect God, not us. Oftentimes people say that they're worshiping the Lord, but their time with the Lord often looks like things that they enjoy and they wanna do and they forget that at the heart of worship is doing it in a way that honors God and puts him preeminent. If you look at the way the tabernacle was built and the very center of it is the holy of holies. God is at the center of their worship, not man. If I had built the tabernacle, you know what would be in the middle of it? Me, in my bed, I would live in it. And I'd be like, God's on the outside, but I'm right here. No, and so because God is kind and loving and he wants to create a way for them to be able to worship him in the way that he deserves, he's the center of the tabernacle. And and the gold and the costly things are all in the center and as you make your way out, then suddenly they become less precious metals. So gold in the middle and then silver and then bronze on the outside that the people interact with because God deserves the best and highest quality. And then us. So ask yourself, in your worship, is God preeminent in your worship? Are you always singing songs? Like I just, Christian music's a hard thing for me to get behind. And I think it's because I didn't grow up in the church. And so when you meet people who grow up in the church and they sing songs from their childhood, you're like, what? I mean, do y'all have this experience? Like Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And you don't grow up in the church. You don't know who Abraham is. And you're like, why does he have so many sons? And then you're modern, so you're like, did he not know about birth control? I mean, you have these questions and then people just joyfully sing these songs. And he's like, I'm one of them and so are you. And I'm like, I'm a girl. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. That's how I feel about a lot of Christian worship. But the thing that rubs me the most is when you turn on Christian worships and the pronouns are I and me and we and very little of you and God and thou. 
So I'm not, this isn't my soapbox. I don't, I don't care that much. I'm sure there's great worship songs out there that include me and I, because it is important that I'm a part of the worship experience. But my question is just, are you exalting God higher than you're exalting yourself? Is the emphasis on the good, good father or on who you are in light of the good, good father? And I hope it's always on the good, good father. The third thing we learned from these instructions is that women were involved. Did y'all catch in verses 38a that the women served at the tent of meeting and those are the women who gave up their mirrors to make the bronze laver, their mirrors. Anybody willing to give up your mirror? I would. I've got this like hair thing. Like I had to water it down before I got up here. I don't know. It's got a mind of its own. So I figured it'd dry at some point while I'm up here and it'll just kind of do its own thing whatever. So I'd probably be doing myself a favor by getting rid of my mirror. But the whole point is, is they give up something really precious. And these women were people that served at the tent of meeting. And then we go on down from, from Exodus to 1 Samuel 2, 22, And it looks like women were continuing to serve at the tabernacle. Women have always been a part of God's ministry. Always. And so we should expect to be a part of God's ministry. They probably did things like help sick women who were coming to the tabernacle or they probably cleansed the utensils or they probably cleansed the garments. One commentator said, there's no way a man in the ancient areas cleaned his own clothes. And so women had to have been a part of it, which I thought was funny. Uh, But women are part of God's ministry. We're expected to be and we're invited to be and what an incredible privilege to take part in that. And so we should expect that, that we should take part in God's ministry. That's what we learned from the, the tabernacle directions being fulfilled. And then we move on to the, to the priest's instructions being fulfilled. And so we learn about the, garment, the garments being made. And then Moses inspects everything. And it says, just as the Lord had told them. Such a contrast to prior to the, the golden calf where things were not done according to God's will. And here, every time you saw it over and over again, things were done just as the Lord commanded them. So he inspects it and then God says, okay, construct it. And then, and then the, the priests are anointed so that they can do their priestly duty. And did y'all catch what happens in this story? What do we learn from this is that God is a God of second chances. Who got anointed? Aaron. Two weeks ago, I'm telling you about this guy who built this golden calf and when he was confronted, what did he do? I don't know, I threw it in the fire and like this thing came out. It's really not my fault. And because of Aaron's poor leadership, 3,000 Israelites were slain that day. There were real consequences for his poor leadership. And what does God do? Aaron, get up, clean yourself off, confess your sin, and come be my high priest. (sighs) Moses isn't the high priest. Joshua's not the high priest. The one who made the golden calf gets to be the high priest. God is a God of second chances. And so what's, what does that mean for us? Well, I think we need to be people who allow God to give people second chances, right? And I'm not saying that in forgiveness that we forget about the sins people have done. And I'm not saying there's also not a time that after the grievance is made that we don't give people time to make sure they're fully repentant. But if God is allowed to give second chances, then we need to be people that make room for people to have second chances, That when confession is made and when repentance is made, that we welcome them back into the fold of God's people because God did that. What reason would we have to deny something that God has given freely to them? And then if you're the person who needs that second chance, can you imagine being Aaron? 
I mean, the grandiosity of this moment, these garments who that were within the fibers were gold, was, and he would have glown and they put it on him. He's got the ephod and he's got the 12 tribes represent. He's got the weight of Israel literally on his shoulders. He's got his turban on and he's being anointed for the service of God's house. And you've got to know in the back of his head, he's thinking, I'm unworthy. And God's going, yes, you are, but I make people worthy. Oh, I love this story because I am Aaron. I get this story. I, I am in awe of the fact that I get to do this for a living. And I'm so thankful that y'all are people of second chances that nobody's looking at my past going, I don't, I don't know. But instead God looks at it and goes, that's why I sent my son. So you could stand up here. You can proclaim my goodness and remind people that I'm a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, on and on chances. I love this story about Aaron. And I love that Aaron gets to be the high priest. And then the massive moment that we've all been waiting for. Right, we, we remember Exodus, right? We remember being in Egypt. We remember being drawn out and then we wandered through the wilderness and, and God was like, you need water? Here's water. You need bread? Here's bread. Here's quail. Here's what do you need? You need to fight the Amorites? I will give you victory. What do you need? Come to the mountain. Here are the instructions. Did you just seriously make a golden calf? I might kill you all. Okay, I'm not gonna kill you all. Okay, let's do this all again. And he's like, now make the tabernacle. And then suddenly the tabernacle's made and then all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. We've had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, but suddenly they're no longer off in a distance. He is in their midst. The text says Moses finished the work and then God's glory came to dwell with them. We see that now they can move forward towards the land of Cana, the promise that God made to Abraham. We knew that this book was about a God who keeps his promises and now they can move ahead. And you can imagine as you're moving towards Cana and you've got this tabernacle and you put it down and then the foreigners are looking at you and they're like, what's that cloud? Oh, that's our God. Uh, it's right there. Mm-hmm. No, he dwells with us. We have a special kind of relationship like a husband and wife who may or may not consummate at the Motel 6. Yeah, it's special. It's a special privilege, this fulfillment of God's people. They get something that nobody else in the world gets. And it's amazing. What an incredible end to this story that we, that we built up to. And so what's the big so what? Well, I said it two weeks ago and I stand by it again today that even as incredible as this moment is, the Israelites and Moses still have nothing on New Testament believers as incredible as this moment. Like you can imagine as they're moving and so some Philistine or some, I don't know, Canaanite comes in and they're like, that's your God. And you're like, yes. And look, we can behold the cloud that is his glory. No, I can't see him face to face. No, I can't come into the Holy of Holies, but he is right there. And in some ways I can experience him. And what a privilege. But then God chose to send his son and John chose to write about it. And we get to John 1, verses one through six and then down to verse 14, it says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was fully God. The word was with God in the beginning, and all things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has ever been created, and in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth who came from the Father. 
He took up residence among us. That word in the Greek is eskenosin, that verb took up residence. And, and it, it really interesting thing. So the Old Testament is written mostly in Hebrew and a little bit in Aramaic. And then in about the third century BC, people were going, hey, people are starting to read Greek. We should probably translate the Old Testament into Greek. So they did. And that's what the Septuagint is. And so the Septuagint is just a fancy word for the Greek Old Testament. And you know what the Greek word in the Old Testament is for tabernacle? Eskenosin. This text, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. We no longer look at a cloud in a tabernacle. Instead, we look at God in the flesh who chose to come and tabernacle among his people. And so we have something better. I don't know what you're thinking. Well, Nika, I didn't see Jesus. And I look at you and I go, you're right. And that's why John kept writing. And so in chapter 16, verse seven, he says, when I go, Jesus says, when I go, one is better coming to you that will dwell in you. Do you know where the tabernacle is today? It's you and it's me. It's anybody who knows Jesus. We are now the tabernacles. The Israelites are jealous of us. And it's an amazing story. And so I hope you all know, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then this incredible consummating moment of the fulfillment of all these promises has happened in your life and your body is now the temple in which God's spirit resides. We got upgraded. We don't look at a room, we are the room. So you may be asking yourself, well, Nike, you've told us now at the end of the study that basically the Israelites have nothing on us and what we have is better, so why do we study Exodus at all then? It's a great question. One, because we picked it. So, uh, but two, it's because, well, really one, because that wasn't a real reason. So one, it's because it gave us a chance to introduce to us a God who rescues, redeems, and reveals. And that same God is the one in the New Testament that we keep talking about. The same God who keeps his promises is the same one we're betting our lives on. And then the second reason is because every page of Exodus screams at us that there is a savior to come. And we've looked at you every week and said, he came, he came. And this weekend we celebrated his resurrection. And in his dying and his resurrection and his spirit coming, we have something even greater, even greater. And so this story of rescue, redemption, and revelation as incredible and as grandiose as it is, the ones in your life are even grander. And so if you're sitting here today and you're still not sure about this Jesus guy, come, come. And if you do have a relationship with Jesus, just treasure the fact that you are his tabernacle and his spirit dwells in you and he is pleased with you. We've had an absolute blast with you guys on this journey. And so next week we'll celebrate all the Lord has done. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we are now the tabernacle and the temple of your spirit. That we read this story and we see the incredible language of how you give second, third, fourth, fifth chances and your spirit comes and dwells in its fullest glory in the tabernacle. And we see that and we say we want that and you say then you can have it. We thank you that your son came and tabernacled among us and we beheld your glory and his glory. And that when we say we believe, in essence, we say we do, and we wed ourselves to you in a way that we become the home of your glory. So God, we just thank you that we are an ever-increasing glory to glory, as your word tells us. And one day we will see you face to face. And we will stand around with our Israelite brothers and sisters and praise you forever. 
And so we thank you for your word that instructs us and shows us how to do it. We thank you for your word that tells us who you are. And we thank you for your word who gives us the ability to know you in an intimate way. It's in your son's name we ask all these things. Amen.